Smartcast. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Hold on to your butts. We are changing the course of history as we see it. That is what Wesker demands. Now this affects Iris. Um, Iris, where are you? What you feel only matters to you. I do not entertain hypotheticals. The world as it is is vexing enough. Iris, I have a tip for you. Don't take drugs! Or whatever movies with Wesley and Iris. What up and welcome to Or Whatever Movies. I'm your co-host, Iris, and I'm here with my lion, Bilkin, card sharp of a brother. Wesley. And today, we're talking a movie that cannot be found anywhere other than on my dusty DVD, 310 to Yuma. Technically, it's on Roku Channel. Oh, right. 2007, best year for movies in recent memory, especially for Westerns. Do tell. Oh my goodness, the assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford, 310 to Yuma, uh, No Country for Old Men, There Will Be Blood? What, are you kidding me? You can't front like the Shawshank Redemption and be like, this movie sucked. Oh, I'm messing with you. <laughs> We've talked a lot about your love for Westerns and your and Clint Eastwood Westerns especially. We've reviewed Unforgiven. Jesse James and the coward Robert Ford kind of a snooze fest. A no. little bit, you have to admit. A little bit. That was my post-breakup window shut watching it on repeat movie. <laughs> wow. Like with the tin foil over the windows and everything? So good. I have to warn you, my dear brother, that I'm coming at you hard for 310 to you, Mark. Are you prepared? Nothing. Nothing. Oh, ho, 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 ho. All right, we'll see if you eat those words by the end of this discussion. Are you ready? Go. Okay. (laughs) Okay, I'll I'll begin with a, uh, not a softball. I genuinely want to know, what does Wade see in Evans? I think he sees the morality that he can't possess. He's obviously an intelligent guy. Both of these guys are hyper aware of their limitations, right? And they've kind of chosen different paths. And I think he recognizes the father that he is trying to be and the father that Wade's father was not. You know, his dad was gone in early early age and his mom left him reading the Bible. Oh, like all Punky Brewster style at the grocery store? (laughs) That was Cherry's father? I know that was Punky's father, huh? Yeah, Punky's parent left her at the grocery store. And here you have it. This is why you listen to or whatever movies, because never in the world before has 310 to Yuma been compared to Punky Brewster. (laughs) We have a knack for these kinds of disparate connections. I I think he saw in him the potential or a person who was flawed and had his own problems and concerns, still hyper-focused on being a good dad as much as even in the face of his kid outright, his kid's outright disdain for him. Okay. So in short, you're saying that Wade admires Dan's intelligence, his morality, and his courage to be the kind of dad and husband that he sees his wife and son want him to be? Now, take it easy. I didn't say intelligence, because he is, after all, just a $2 a day hired out rancher. And he treats him as such, but he sees his determination, you know, the kind of thing where he listens when Butterfield is like, you continue to inspire confidence. He's steadfast. 
and Wade admires that. So maybe he has a little admiration for his ranch hand friend, even if he looks down on him a little. It's not enough, though. Wade is a sensitive soul, but that crusty facade is very crusty. What can explain the ending other than pity? They found a mutual, on some level, uh, mutual admiration where, you know, he smiled at him, where he was like, I've been there twice, broke out twice too. And you can see that Evans knows that if even if he goes, he won't be there for long, but it will be enough for him to collect his money because he doesn't care about Wade necessarily. He doesn't care about Butterfield or the cause. He wants his money to keep his ranch afloat. And Wade is interested in at least helping him achieve that goal. I mean, interested enough that he goes along with what is kind of a ruse, an awful lot. Like yeah. He's all running and kind of passively passing the time playing the game even though he'll fork you in the throat when you oh, go to sleep. my goodness for all the movies the retribution murders in history it's got to be one of the most brutal like it's not the most graphic or it's not the most distasteful or whatever but he just he's like now you die and he kills him with a fork i mean these are puncture wounds he's not dracula like these are, are tiny little wounds like dozens of them and that's not the best way to die i'm sure oh well, it's better than getting your heart cut out with a spoon. Yeah, but that guy, <laughs> but this guy was deplorable. <laughs> Doesn't Kevin Durand, the character actor, kind of play these kinds of deplorable, hateable roles? Well, he's also been, I, I kind of, I know he's been in other movies that I've seen. I kind of only remember him for this, but he's a, like a big, doofy Canadian looking dude. But he also has vague Asian-ness. He's like Vasian. Do you get that sense? He's been in a number of <laughs> Russell Crowe movies as well. But if he were Asian, he would have no part of that posse or the American West if he wasn't like, you know, a servant or, or, or working in a laundry or something. I don't mean that to be like to be rude or racist or anything like literally in Unforgiven, the Chinese English Bob was sent there to kill Chinese on behalf of the railroad. I don't know that he would be in a uh, sheriff's office type or working for uh, for Hollander, who wasn't exactly upstanding. Don't get me wrong. But did he have an Asian feel for you? In a Ronald Lacey tot kind of way, maybe. <laughs> I guess. As Man, in, that's terrible not at all. <laughs> we're, we're mixed race Asian. When you see the Asians, you're like, oh, an Asian in a cowboy hat. That's weird. But let's roll with it. Hamilton style. Um, or in a Mil Mr. Malcolm's List style. Um, yep. I, you know, I think that Kevin Durant would make a great Elon Musk. That, yeah, he would. I think he might be a little bit old, but and huge. He's like six four or something. Isn't Elon Musk huge? He's got a weird like Optimus Prime upper body. <laughs> Who does Kevin Durant or Elon Musk? Elon Musk. They made fun of his gigantic torso in like some picture. Uh, and who's they? I don't know the the trolls, the internet trolls, and I guess myself included. Then because I just mentioned it. He's Elon Musk is six two. Sure. That's pretty big. I'm still afloat. You have yet to sink me with these questions. Whoa, Kevin Durant, 6'6". Six, six. Okay. So a little, little tall, a little old. Okay, Um, why is a 310 to Yuma remake necessary? Why was it necessary? You know, I'm not sure. This is so long ago that we went to a used DVD store and picked up a copy of the original 310 to Yuma. And that's been on the shelf for years. I still haven't watched it, not even in preparation for this review, despite how many times I've seen the 2007 version of 310 to Yuma, haven't visited the original yet. It only exists in this form in my mind. I will say that it justifies the remake by how 
outrageously good this one is, whereas I'm not sure that the original one achieved necessarily classic Western status, or I would have seen it, I think. I don't have anything against it, but I think it is a modern, if you can say that about a distinctly period Western, in the same way, uh, update, in the same way that the Thomas Crown Affair is. I, I did watch the original for that and think that the remake is infinitely better. But then again, you know, for that time, I was probably one of those youngins who was like, it's new, so it's better. And people are like, you're stupid. <laughs> I mean, I bet all of the 50-year-old Wild West historians and like movie curators and stuff that were in the 310 to Yuma documentary would probably think that way about you. Yeah. But I'm old now, so I'm on the other side of it. Sorry, guys. So 310 to Yuma, 2007, 50 years after the original that came out in 1957. Why is 310 to Yuma 15 years later still relevant? I don't know if it's relevant. I think it's time and place for Westerns that were really influential on me. It was part of my five-part Western series when I sat Kelly Ray down to introduce her to the genre on the whole because it is a great postmodern, post-unforgiven Western where it's not white hat, black hat, and the motivations are not, you know, pure across the board. As much as Ben Wade's a bad guy, he's also a sensitive guy, but it's not quite enough. As much as Evans is an upstanding, do the right thing, Mark uh, William kind of thing, also not quite there. Like he was going to go into town and, and if Hollander didn't, you know, agree and take the little brooch or whatever, he was going to murder Hollander when he walked into the hotel and ended up inadvertently, fortuitously, kind of uh, holding Ben Wade until the authorities got there. And what does it say about his character? In the postmodern sense, they're not good or bad. They're kind of both. They can see and appreciate different qualities in each other and uh, kind of forge this weird connection, even though they're, you know, ships passing in the night or whatever. And what what are the five films in your in your Western onboarding series? Obviously, The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, Seminole Western for Italians and Americans. Uh, Unforgiven, for sure, 310 to Yuma, The Assassination of Jesse James by the Coward Robert Ford, and in the ultimate postmodern Western sense, where it's not a traditional Western, but it blurs lines and, and pushes themes forward, the amazing, previously discussed, No Country for Old Men. You should teach, you should do like a community college series on it. I should, maybe, except I have no interest in teaching people. <laughs> wow. Way to give back, Wes. There's no money in education. Yeah, but think about all of the, the currency you build, the social currency and the and the goodwill that you build in the hearts of the next generation. Yeah, that's always what has been my pursuit is social currency. Um, What's the deal with Westerns and masculinity? Well... Uh, I think this is like the bootstraps kind of Western. Like Evans has nothing. He only has his character and the example he sets for his family. Ben Wade is a murderous criminal and rotten to the core, as he put it, by necessity to be able to run an outfit like that, like that he does. But he is also an artist and can see and appreciate. And I don't know that he actually would have done it, but he likes to think that he would have given Evans a thousand dollars to let him be a bona fide Arizona rancher for his pretty blonde wife. To answer your question, it is man left to his own devices with nothing to kind of forge a future or um, a masculinity or a manhood with their hands. You know, quick with a gun or willing, daring enough to go on a mission with odds stacked against him for the money to save his family and to be the man of the house. It is stripped of all pretense, the barest essence of masculine achievement. 
You know, what did you tell whoever will listen that your daddy is the one who saw Ben Wade to that train? Yeah, which leads me to my next question. Why does Dan Evans confuse sacrifice, what's essentially sacrifice, with genuinely providing to his family? Like, if you want to instill confidence and admiration in your wife and your child, how about you step up and you provide for them and find a way to survive this situation and come through on the other side, you know, successful, as opposed to basically just walking yourself out to the slaughter? You know, I'm not sure that there was a real future for Dan Evans. He was going to go in spite of his wife's concerns because only that extreme situation where he would face death and keep moving forward was the only way he was going to get his kids admiration. And if he wasn't going to get that money, if he wasn't going to be able to save his family from Hollander taking over their their land or cutting off the water supply, then he was going to go out in the blaze of glory. And he was willing to die escorting Ben Wade for the opportunity to prove to his family because it was about the money, sure, but it also was about, I'm, you know, I'm sick of William's contempt for me. I'm sick of the way you know he looks at me. I'm sick of the way that you don't. I don't know that it really mattered necessarily, especially if if Butterfield passed her a thousand dollars. Of course, she would miss her husband, but I'm not sure that he was it was what she needed. He was just cashing in on the life insurance policy, basically. Yeah, and his sacrifice was enough for him to solidify his position. I know that seems weird to say because it's like almost like he wanted to die just to get out of it or to be able to say that he was a good person, which is ironic, but. I just didn't see a world where he would come back and if the rains came or if they turned the corner to spring that they would be happy. Uh, I'm not sure. I think he was pretty beaten down and broken and the only thing he had left was his resolve and his moral compass. Back to the gender portrayal thing. Um, It's not lost on me that this is the second Vanessa Shaw prostitute movie. (laughs) (laughs) Who always say Vanessa Shaw. You have to say Vanessa Shaw from Hocus Pocus. That not being the other <laughs> prostitute movie. No, I speak of 310 to Yuma and Eyes Wide Shut, uh, where she played the prostitute. Um, so was she a prostitute or was she a bartender, lunger, singer? A lunger singer? Yeah, she had. She got the coffin and she moved to a drier climb, just like Mark, they did with Mark. Oh, and just like... Um, she got the Burke. Just like Val Kilmer. Yeah. Who shows up in this movie? He does? Oh, wait. He's a poor man's Val Kilmer. Butterfield? He didn't give you oh. Val Kilmer vibes the entire time. <laughs> uh, no, but then, but there was this one actor who like was totally giving me Luke Wilson vibes. And I was yeah. like, gosh, that guy looks just like Luke Wilson. Just like him, ex- except with dirty teeth, right? <laughs> yes. And then I was like, shoot, that's Luke Wilson. Yeah, then they did. Didn't they then shoot Luke Wilson? <laughs> and then they shot Luke Wilson, and I was like, that's so weird to have, like, a comedy actor in here. You'd think, like, who's next, Alan Tudyk? Right. And then Jeez. I was like, man, that guy looks a lot like Alan Tudyk. Right. No, Doc died a hero. It was the most touching moment in the movie. His, I had to say, that was a real nice moment for dying Alan Tudyk, when he was, like, all happy. He, like, gave that sad, soft little smile. <sighs> we took it. All we brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade Two. 
Play it now with Game Pass. Ah, <sighs> uh, but bizarro choices. I mean, maybe not 2007 bizarre, but like seeing Alan Tudyk and Luke Wilson in those roles, kind of weird. Yeah, good old Doc. So what what right does James Mangold have putting a Brit and an Aussie in a Western? It's weird. We think of Westerns, I mean, what Western, as we discussed before, is the quintessential American genre. The Wild West didn't really exist anywhere else, just like Brits and Australians do country music for some reason. Like Sting was doing country songs and stuff, and you're like, what? Because it's doesn't Keith Urban isn't Keith Urban kind of country? I'm not sure. Is Keith Urban is he British or is he not American? I think he's Australian. Yeah, I, I don't know. As as I would not listen necessarily to Keith Urban, but they view it as sort of exotic in a way, and and they like westerns. This is we've talked about, you know, the Quick and the Dead, which is Russell Crowe's other western. Uh, Christian Bale, who seems like he's strangely made for westerns, uh, was in Hostiles and things like that. So they both fit in seamlessly for me, and really, they are the only non-Americans in major roles. But not to say that it that there wasn't something to the casting because, you know, I get it. Dudes love Russell Crowe and like dudes freak out over Gladiator and stuff. Yeah. Okay. And I think he's all right, but Russell Crowe was really good in this movie. Yeah. I think he's got that gravelly tone that's really scary, but he's also like a cutie and kind of refined. He's kind of a dandy. Like, Ben Wade stuck out so much. His hat was bougier than Butterfield's even. And Butterfield's a tenderfoot. Yeah, shiny shoes. Yeah. Especially in contrast with um, Ben Foster's Charlie Prince, who's just all animal. Ben Foster is so great, though. An animal in orange pants, mind you. He was a a little bit of a dandy himself. (laughs) Yeah, he's got the most distinctive wardrobe, I think, out of the whole cast. Yep. That button-up thing that he's wearing, that button-up leather jacket, it's all all tightly fitted and stuff and how he does the like the blazer thing where you like button it and unbutton it depending on the circumstance (laughs) it's like a double breasted white duster like a leather duster yeah but it's kind of like a like a waistcoat length but he like when he jumps off the horse or he's like going to kill somebody he unbuttons that top button for some reason i think men always like to have like business with the they like do little blazer business like when they get up and button and sit down and unbutton and all that stuff. You watch that, right? Poster quote. In the deleted scenes, there's the moment where Wade tells Dan that Will is following not Dan, but Wade. Yeah. I believe that Mangold made the right decision cutting that scene. But I think that it was probably hard because that's such a good line. And it's so, and it was so revealing, too. I mean, I think we still get the idea. We see Will's admiration for Wade on his face at the dinner table. We know that he reads like the pulp magazines or whatever the stories of the of the day that kind of glamorize the outlaw life. But it was such a great line and Russell Crowe delivers it so well. And it's such a needle into Dan's heart that I imagine it was a hard decision to cut that scene. But it was an, it was ultimately the right thing because it was better to reveal to Dan later that Will was following them. I agree. And I think eye on the ball a little bit because as much as he's, you know, I want to help, I can do this. I run any better than any of these bastards because he was right. This is the worst 
motley crew of like elite prison transfer dudes ever. Like Doc is useless and that Butterfield bastard is totally useless. And that other <laughs> mean dude and the one-legged dude, that's terrible. <laughs> and he would have done good stuff. But we're ultimately trying to get it so that he comes to admire his dad. And if we if he's following Ben Wade and wants to get in on all the, all the highfalutin quick draw in action, then, you know, it might muddy the moral message, I guess, or the emotional message of this movie. So you said this movie is outrageously good and you're referencing some moral message. What makes this movie so good and what is the moral message? I'm not trying to read more, I don't think, necessarily into what is offered on the screen, but I think because it's complex, because you definitely like Wade, even as he, in the face of the most horrible things ever. And as much as Dan Evans is the hero, I think a lot of the time we don't like him. He steadfastly plows forward and it's like, dude, you're going to get you and your boy killed with your pig-headedness. He's stubborn. And those qualities, I think, are riveting in both of the main leads. Uh, Wade, he, he doesn't lie when he tells William the truth about himself. He's like, call him off. I, there is some good in you. And he's like, kid, I'm rotten. As, you know, I would need to be rotten as hell. For all his trying to turn Evans to the dark side, he is that person who would probably have pulled a gun on him in the tunnels and shot him dead if it meant him or them. He killed his whole gang in service of his the morality that he acquired trying to help Dan or whatever. You mean in his pity played for jumping on the on the train? Again, probably because his mother abandons him, he sees a father figure in Dan and wants to help him even though it's only until he rounds the corner. And he can jump on his horse. Evans is unfailingly good. He does what's right. But both of these dudes, they understand the peril of their choices. You know, when they compromise a little bit, they know how dangerous it is. And when they steadfastly march toward the roles that, that they feel they've been assigned, they he, he knows that he could die. Or, or Wade knows that he might die in allowing Dan to continue this rigmarole. So the good and bad in, in them, they're just measures. They're not absolutes. And that's why I think mm. it's it's good. I think it's complex and great in the same way that the Wild West seems exciting and cool, but it's also terrible. And even the good guys are bad guys. And I would, I love to watch it. I wouldn't want to live there. How would this have been better or worse if Will Evans had shot Ben Wade? I don't know that he would have gotten paid because they could have shot him the second they walked into the hotel. And the point was to see him hung for his crimes in public, as he said, for his 22nd stagecoach robbery. So to get there, for him to do it, I think that he would have known that that wasn't right to murder a man who was pretty much defenseless because he's not the one who killed Evans. And the one who killed Evans is dead. And I'm not sure that Butterfield would have paid up just to have that dude die in basically the extended version of a gunfight. How hmm. it would have been better is if Evans hadn't stood by the train like a moron. Get on the train, Dan. He was like, well, my job is done. Let me turn my back to the dudes with six shooters. Well, he had miraculously survived all the hail of gunfire getting there. Yeah. Maybe he figured he was invincible. Yeah, everybody else was sitting on the train like, whoa, there's a gunfight out there. You climb into the train, you use the walls as protection, and you sit on a little bench, and they slam the door and you ride away. Yeah, you both ride away, right? right? Exactly. <laughs> but then, then we wouldn't have gotten all the other stuff. The train as Dan's heartbeat. 
It's like chugging in in time with his heart as it's slowing down. That's kind of sensitive, Wes. Yeah, did you get it? Nope. We didn't get that that crazy shot uh, with the hand of God. It wasn't in one shot. I checked, but he he ex- exhausts all six shots with one thumb and kills his entire gang in the blink of an eye. This is like the last of the westerns where being quick with a gun kind of means anything. I think. Was that a particularly adept performance, gun of gunslinging? Why is it the, is the one thumb thing important? Well, because he they're all single action pistols, so you can't just pull the trigger. You have to cock the gun each time. And so what Eastwood did was the fan method, hand fan, where he needs two hands to fan the hammer with one hand while aiming the gun and holding the trigger down with the other. Bam, 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 bam. Because you can't cock and, and shoot that quickly with a single hand, except Ben Wade sure did it. Six people with six bullets cocking with his thumb each time. It was astounding. Not to mention drawing well before Charlie Prince even got his hand on his gun. Yep. And then because he's a cold-blooded killer, just like he told William, he looks Charlie dead in the eye and shoots him with his own Schofield. Shoots him with his own gun? There's got to be something about cowboy hell. I'm just saying. Getting shot with your own gun. It's like right up there with like dying with your boots off. Um, So, but Ben Wade is not evil. Well, no, I think he is. But I think he uses his own morality to his purpose. He said, you know, every every man, I, I can't forget, I don't remember if this was in a deleted scene or not, but he told Byron McElroy that every man is, is right in his own mind. That's in, but the context was deleted. Was McElroy a good guy? Were we horrified when Wade killed an innocent man by chucking him off the cliff? Because it seems like it was true. For whatever whatever reason, McElroy did kill men, women, and children, uh, albeit Apaches. But like outlaws back in the West, they were just subhuman, like the coolies in the mine? Yeah. So, well, yeah, the Luke Wilson line. He's like, you're only going to say two lines, but they're going to be both racist. <laughs> I had and, to look up coolie. Terrible word. But he's good, but he's bad. You know, Ben Wade, even bad men love their mama. Definitely a bad man, but still he loves his mama and he loves certain things that are important to him. Isn't that the definition of like psychopath or sociopath? Kinda. What I'm saying is he's not a good guy and it's great that he's not a good guy. (sighs) You love this movie and you love Russell Crowe in it, despite the fact that he does horrible things on multiple occasions. I love Russell Crowe's performance as Ben Wade. It's subtle. He's really adept at using his mouth. Yeah, when was the last you? Smacky. When was the last time we had a luxurious uh, sex scene or implied sex scene or a romance scene with a bad guy? Ew, what with Vanessa Shaw? Yeah, he had a, like a, a sensual drawing her butt in bed, like Titanic style kind of scene. Well, I think that they were trying to suggest something about his allure. You know, he knows that people like him. That's how he gets out of prison. And that's how he gets things. And he had a lot of confidence with women. He was even making the moves on Mrs. Evans. What did you say your name was again? He turned Alice's head for sure. And it was just a moment, but it was a glimmer of the, the bad, super confident, super tough and resourceful dude that she didn't see in Dan anymore. Aww. Yeah, it's very sad. He was definitely burdened by a pretty blonde wife. <sighs> I think they also made the uh, a judicious choice cutting out the scene where she comes out to ask him about Mexico. Did you see that deleted scene? Oh, yeah, where she asks if he was... You're talking about Vanessa Shaw's Velvet, I guess, was her na- old name, whether he was serious 
about going to Mexico, shinning on down to Mexico with Ben, ben Wade on my arm. And he said no. But I think yeah. that was in a way to cert to, you know, it was it was gone that, hey, that's gone. I'm in the wagon. I'm not I can't come back for you. Just move on and don't think what could have been. Oh, you putting the nice spin on it where he was just taking her off the hook? He gave her the autonomy to make the decision. She did, even if it's by dismissing him because not thinking he's serious. And he made her feel justified and resolved in that choice. Good job, Ben Wade. All right. Do you feel justified in in justifying 310 to Yuma? A hundred percent. I don't see that you shot me down at all. Well, my intention wasn't to shoot you down. This wasn't a showdown but to really test your your mettle in supporting and defending this film uh are we discussing 310 to yuma because it's james mangold or did you realize that after the fact we're discussing it in part in our preparation for indiana jones and the dial of destiny which we haven't seen yet and james mangold has come quite a long way in the in the 15 years since 310 to yuma and i'm not sure it's all a good direction this is great because it feels very practical, very gritty, very real. You know, I don't think there were any effects shots in this movie that were really noticeable. Maybe some weather here and there, but they're crashing stagecoaches and riding those horses and burning those wagons and burning those barns and stuff. And and it felt very real in the way that I think Indiana Jones really should. But to look at the Indiana Jones trailer, it's pretty cartoony, man. And I wonder about that. I'm worried. Mm. So we'll see how far this dude comes. I, ho- I hope it's a long way. That stagecoach rack was spectacular. Yeah, it was great. And they flipped a real stagecoach multiple times. When that train, the 310 to Yuma rolls into the station, you can feel it in your stomach. It's like the magnitude of their shared impending destinies coming to meet them, coming home to wow. roost or whatever. It, it feels important. This whole movie felt important the the little looks and stuff you can see in evans's eyes when ben wade is offering him a thousand dollars he allows himself five seconds to daydream before he shakes it off and you're like really hoping that he can one day be an arizona rancher i have to say that performance was exceptional from from bale as well yeah when he's when he has those two little moments where he has to laugh it off yep oh my gosh really good super subtle really fine-tuned work both very good in the right applications. There was some weird tonal stuff going on with Return to Yuma, you have to admit. I, I don't think it was a an oversight to cast Luke Wilson and, and Alan Tudyk, known comedic actors. I think that Ben Foster's performance verges on comedy. He's so closeted in his love for Ben Wade. He's so unable to like acknowledge his own like love and need for Ben Wade that he behaves in this really kind of bizarre fashion that that verges on comedy? I don't know. I, I felt really sad for him when he's in the bar and Ben Wade is nothing has nothing but eyes for Velvet. And Charlie Prince, he acknowledges that, oh, Ben Wade's going to try to get some or whatever. And he's like, you know, we're going to be just over the border. I'll wait for you. And, and Ben <laughs> Wade's like, all right, Charlie. And he's not even looking at it. It's so heartbreaking. I really feel for Charlie Prince because all of his ferocity, the animal nature that you mentioned before, is in service of his love and dedication. You forget what he done for us. You know, we're going to contention and that's it. And he's steadfast in his resolve. And then when he gets there, he's like, you okay, boss? Aw. So is this a totally situation for you? 
I'm going to say this is a darn tootin'. A darn tootin'? Yeah, which is a Western totally. In the Western genre, I feel like this one is a little bit overlooked, maybe because it's a retread. It's a redo of a of a movie 50 years prior. But for me, this is an absolutely essential Western. This I think this movie is an aight. But still crosses the line. You gave it an R.I., which is a fresh on the tomato meter. That's at least 60%, which makes it fresh, which makes it good. And that's our discussion on 2007's 310 to Yuma. We haven't completed the five essential Westerns, but we've done a lot of them, including Unforgiven and No Country for Old Men. I'm surprised we haven't done Sergio Leone's The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. Yep. Why haven't we? I don't know, but I'm ready. We have to space the Westerns out over years. Yeah. And 200 plus other discussions at orwhatevermovies.com or wherever you get podcasts. So if you enjoyed this episode on 310 to Yuma, let us know. 818-835-0473 or whatevermovies at gmail.com. And thanks for listening. Welcome to Transforming 45, the podcast that celebrates the incredible power of passionate voices. I'm your host, Lisa Boat. Join me in conversation with heart-led humans who share their deeply personal stories of transformation. Transforming 45 is here to uplift, connect, and remind you that it's never too late to write your next chapter. So get ready to be inspired, empowered, and transformed. Join me in this community where through powerful storytelling, we heal and reclaim our inherent magic. Electric Have you ever wondered what actually happens in Congress every day? Stay informed on Capitol Hill's daily happenings with a concise, factual summary of the Senate and House of Representatives activities from the previous session, free from bias, on the Congressional Record Daily Digest podcast. Subscribe on your favorite podcast platform and discover the process from the heart of U.S. politics. The Congressional Record Daily Digest, an Electric Cast production. Electric Acid. Electric Acid.